Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of baptism, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. In the previous broadcast, I was talking about the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus, and that the reason why the Lord our God sent John the Baptist to baptize was so that he could identify the Messiah, so that through his testimony, the Messiah would be identified. Now, John made a comparison between the baptism that he was doing and the baptism that the Lord Jesus would do. And in that comparison, he explained that the two baptisms were not going to be the same. This was described in John chapter 1, verse 33, where John said that I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I was explaining in the previous broadcast that John was sent to identify the Lord Jesus as the one who the Holy Spirit descended upon, but not just that, but that he would baptize in the Holy Spirit. John would baptize in water, Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a number of other references in the scriptures to what John said. For example, in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, while gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Another reference that's similar to this is found in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verse 15, when Peter was giving his testimony before the Jews who believed in Jesus about the Gentiles who were saved before they converted to Judaism. That occurred in Acts chapter 10. But in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Peter said, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what I would like to focus on in today's program is this difference between the baptism in water and the baptism in, by, or with the Holy Spirit. Regardless of what preposition you'd like to use for that, I think we can agree that it eventually boils down to one simple thing. And that is that the Lord Jesus baptizes us in a different way than John was able to baptize us. The Lord Jesus will baptize you in a very different way than anyone here on earth will be able to baptize you. People here on earth can baptize you in water, but only the Lord Jesus can baptize you in or with or by the Holy Spirit. Now this has to do with the very purpose of Jesus coming at all. That's how important this is. 
This was referred to at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus referred to it during his ministry. He referred to this after his ministry, which was the beginning of a new ministry according to the new covenant after he was resurrected. This is the very purpose for which Jesus came, and that was to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. But what does that really mean? I mean, there are many opinions concerning why the Lord Jesus came here. There are many opinions, many differences. If you were to go around taking a survey, asking people, why did Jesus come? Or what was the purpose of Jesus' ministry? Why was he teaching what he was teaching? What was the goal that Jesus was trying to accomplish? You would get many different answers. There are many potential answers that people can give. And when I say that, I'm not wanting to imply that they are all correct, because many of them are just flat out wrong. For example, some people believe that the reason why Jesus came was to provide us with a simpler sacrificial system. You know, the one with sacrificing animals was a little too complicated. And so Jesus needed to simplify that a little bit to make it a little bit more universal. And so people believe that he simplified it by instituting a confessional system, a confessional sacrificial system. Whereas before you had to kill and set your pets on fire, but now you just have to apologize. It's a lot easier, a lot cleaner that way too. This is what people believe, and I totally reject that belief. I don't believe that at all. There are other reasons that people give. For example, they believe that Jesus came in order to give you an example to live by. Jesus lived a certain way, so you should live in the same way that Jesus lived. I personally don't subscribe to that opinion either. There is a way that I can use that. I can say, certainly, the Lord Jesus lived in a certain way. He lived in a perfect, holy, righteous way. And if you think that you can live a holy, righteous life, then by all means, try to live exactly how he did, and perhaps you will be impressive. If you succeed, as he did, I would say that you would be comparable with the Lord Jesus. Perhaps you also would be an expression of God manifested in the flesh. However, I do not think that that can possibly be real. And so that kind of a goal or that kind of a purpose, to me, doesn't make any sense. I can apply it in a different way, though. I can say, you see, you should try it, but now when you realize that you cannot accomplish it, you need to give up. I mean, you really need to just give up and recognize that the only hope you can possibly have is his grace and mercy, because your obedience, your repentance, definitely is not going to be adequate. In that context, I can use that. He gave us a way to be blessed. He came here for the purpose of giving us an opportunity to be blessed. And I certainly agree with that to a certain extent, but not in the same way that other people believe. Many people believe that if you are obedient to God, then he will bless you. I believe that you will be blessed because of what he did, not because of what you did. And that is the total opposite of what the majority of people are believing and teaching today. I do not fit in that camp. I sincerely believe that we are blessed because of what Jesus did for us, not because of what we think we are going to do for Jesus. It's a different opinion, a different belief. But we must ask this question, and we must answer this question, the question of why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? What was his purpose in coming? What did he accomplish? And what is the significance of what he came to accomplish? You must resolve this question. Otherwise, what do you really believe? I mean, what do you believe? Let me give you an example. 
I ask people often, tell me, how would you describe the gospel? Now, that's a very important question. How you describe the gospel says an awful lot about what you believe the gospel is. You can just ask that question. What is the gospel? Try asking that question next time you go to church. Ask that question of five to ten different people, and you will get five to ten different answers, with the exception of the answer, I don't know, or let's talk about something else. Those are very popular answers, more popular than any other answer, it seems. There are many answers that people give because there are differences of beliefs, differences in opinions concerning what the gospel is. But the gospel, the good news, is the very definition of why Jesus came. And so until this gets resolved, until there is a common agreement, or at least a common recognition, of what people believe concerning Jesus' purpose and the good news, then there really isn't much more you can discuss. You can discuss a lot in the sense of argumentation, but you're never going to get anywhere because you're never getting down to the real root issues. For example, when people will ask the question, is it necessary to be baptized to be saved? That's not the real question that you have to answer with that kind of a question. With that kind of a question, you have to answer a different question first, and that is, what is salvation? What is it really? Because if you know what salvation is, or at least if you can identify what salvation is, then a question like that is very easy to answer. Now, there are definitely differences of opinions concerning what salvation is, what the gospel is, why Jesus came, and I'm not going to use the time in this program to discuss these differences. Instead, just to focus on the subject of baptism, I'm going to be very direct and tell you exactly what I believe concerning the gospel and what the gospel is. The gospel to me, the good news, and the purpose for which Jesus came was to solve a problem. The gospel, the good news, is a solution to a problem. The way I sometimes describe this is as the bad news. In other words, if you'd like to know what the good news is, it can be very helpful to know what the bad news is. In a similar way, it's very difficult to appreciate a solution if you don't know what the problem is. If you were to consider a simple mathematical equation like 2 plus 2 equals 4, it can be very helpful to know that the problem you are trying to solve is 2 plus 2. If somebody just goes around saying 4, 4, 4, What do you mean, four? Does that mean you need to watch out for your forehead in case a golf ball might hit it? No, it means that two plus two is the problem, and four is the solution. Or perhaps three plus one is the problem, or maybe it's five minus one, or six minus two. Who knows? The question is very important, though. The problem is very important, because without the problem, the solution can have very little meaning, if any meaning at all. For example, people might say, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Well, what's the question? What's the question? He's the answer to everything. Okay, well, how? In what way? Can you be a little bit more specific? It's very important to understand the problem so that you can fully understand and appreciate the solution that is provided. Now, the problem between man and God was defined in the Garden of Eden. That was when the problem was defined. You see, when our God created Adam and Eve, he created them in a very specific way. He created them in a very unique way in comparison with the animals and the plants and the trees and everything else that he created. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them in such a way that he could put his Holy Spirit 
within them. This was described in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. He breathed within him the breath of life, and he became a living being. Now, that breath of life that was breathed into Adam was the Holy Spirit of God. That's what it says. The words that were used to describe the breathing in of the breath of life. The breath of life was the nishmat chayim, which was a unique construction referring to the very Holy Spirit of God, he who is the source of all life. That was the life that was breathed within Adam and Eve. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord issued the law. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord gave the commandment that in the day that you eat from the wrong tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. Now, when he said in that day you will surely die, it was an explicit, detailed statement that in that moment of that very day when they ate of it, they would die. Now, if you continue to read into Genesis chapter 3, you discover that sure enough, they ate from the wrong tree. And they died. But what kind of a death did they really experience? Because they seemed to be quite active for a couple of dead people. They went out and did some gardening. They had some children. I would say that they were alive in a certain way. How could they have been dead? Well, they certainly were alive physically, but they were dead spiritually. Because the spirit of life that had been breathed within them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that was the life that was withdrawn So when they were created, they were created to have the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. But when they violated the law, the presence of the Holy Spirit departed from within them. They no longer had the presence of the Holy Spirit. Without having the presence of the Holy Spirit, they certainly could be alive physically, but they could not be alive spiritually in a similar way that they were before. In this context, they are no longer going to be guided and led by the indwelling presence of the living God. So this was the problem. The real problem between man and God was that Adam and Eve violated the law, they lost the Holy Spirit, and everyone who has been born from Adam and Eve since then has been born spiritually dead. So the problem between man and God right now is that we are born into this world spiritually dead. Now, the only way that you are going to solve this problem is if you restore the life that had been lost in Adam. That's the only way that this can be accomplished. To accomplish this, you must deal with another issue, though, and that is the presence of sin. Because according to the law, in the day that you sin, in that day you will surely die. Sin entered into the world. People have got lots of sin. The sin issue has to be resolved. And when it's resolved, it has to be resolved completely. Because if there is any sin left unforgiven then the Holy Spirit will depart from an individual the next time they commit sin, according to the law of sin and death. So there are two issues that need to be resolved. You've got the death of humanity, and you've got the sin of humanity. The Lord Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. He died for everyone's sins. He dealt with the sin issue once and for all when he died on the cross. That was why he came to die. But he didn't just come to die... He also came for the purpose of resurrecting from the dead after he was crucified. The event of the crucifixion was Jesus dying on the cross. The meaning behind that event was that the sin issue between man and God came to an end. 
The event of the resurrection was that Jesus rose from the dead. But the meaning of that event was that he rose from the dead so that he could send the Holy Spirit back to humanity and offer the Holy Spirit of God as a free gift to anyone who would be willing to receive it. And if a person receives the free gift of the Holy Spirit, then there is no sin that has been left unforgiven that will cause that Holy Spirit to depart from anyone ever again. And so when you receive the Spirit now, you will never lose it. There is nothing to cause it to depart. This restored life, this resurrected life that is put back within an individual is a permanent life, is an everlasting life, is an eternal life. That is the good news. The bad news is sin and death. The good news is forgiveness for the sin and the restoration of life that was lost through death. The Holy Spirit was given to mankind upon creation and was lost because of sin. The sin issue was dealt with. The Holy Spirit has now been offered to the people who are here in creation. And if we are willing to receive it as a free gift, then we will be resurrected and made alive once again. That is the good news. The good news is that Jesus came so that we could be saved from our condition of being dead. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Notice that in verse 9. In verse 9, you have been justified by his blood, but you will be saved not by his blood. You will be saved by something else. And that's described in verse 10, where it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So you are justified by his death. You are reconciled to him by his death. But if you want to be saved, you've got to be saved through the restoration of life. And this life is the life of God, the very Holy Spirit of God. So then what did John mean when he said that Jesus was going to come to baptize us with the Holy Spirit? What did that mean? That meant that we would be immersed by the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, we would receive the Holy Spirit that Jesus came to give. That was what it meant. He meant that Jesus would come to provide us with the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam. So again, the purpose that Jesus had in coming, his purpose for being here, his entire purpose for his ministry was to save us. And salvation is the restoration of the life of God that had been lost in Adam. It is the restoration of the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. This is salvation. And it is critical. It is absolutely critical. It is necessary. It is mandatory to understand that this is what salvation truly is. Because if you don't understand this, then there is no possible way to understand the subject of baptism. There's just no possible way to understand it. The Lord our God used baptism in order to describe to us the restoration of the Holy Spirit. 
the Lord our God used a pharisaical doctrine, a pharisaical teaching that the Pharisees came up with for the purpose of converting a Gentile to Judaism. He used that to show everyone, even the Jews, are just as unclean as the Gentiles, that everyone needs the sin issue resolved. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, the sin issue must be resolved, and everyone must receive the Holy Spirit. He used a pharisaical teaching to explain the divine revelation of the good news of the restoration of the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam. It's very important to see this, because this is what answers many questions about baptism. For example, the question of, do you have to be baptized to be saved? Of course not. It has nothing to do with salvation, except that it was used by God in order to explain salvation. But just because he used it to explain salvation doesn't mean that you have to participate in it. It doesn't mean that. It is something that our God used, but it's not the very thing that we are to focus on. He used that in order to explain something else. So to answer the question of, is it necessary for salvation, you must first recognize what salvation really is, what the problem truly is, and what the solution is to that problem. You know, any lost person can get baptized. Anybody can do that. Anybody can go to the Jordan and be baptized by anyone. Anyone can go to a church building, can find a bathtub, can find a lake, can go to the ocean. Anybody can do that. You don't even have to believe that there is a God in order to do that. This is a physical act. This is an act that anyone can do and believe anything that they want to believe. You must recognize that anybody can do that. But the only one who can baptize you with the Holy Spirit is the living God himself. And he will decide who he will do that for, how he will do that, under what circumstances. He has made it very clear that if you will believe in him, if you will trust in him, and he agrees, he recognizes that you are doing so out of a sincere heart, then he will respond. There is no one else who can do that. There is no one who can make the right decision concerning who will be saved, who will not be saved, according to who desires mercy and who doesn't really desire mercy. He can do that. He can make that decision. He always makes the true, proper, and righteous decision. But when it comes to the physical baptism in water, anybody can do that. Anybody can convince or deceive anyone into what they are believing or what they're not believing. It doesn't matter. That is why this is so important to see. Because if you don't see this, then you will not recognize that this is the initial step of you experiencing a personal, interactive relationship with your God, which is what he has called you to, so that you can grow to know who he is. And this is the next part of why he came. First, he came to resurrect people who wanted to be resurrected, who want to be saved. And then of those who are resurrected, he then desires to have a personal interactive relationship with them so that they can know who he is. And that is the greater goal that is accomplished after salvation. Again, salvation is the restoration of life. It is the act of our God resurrecting you from the dead. You probably recall what it was like to be lost. 
you probably recall what it was like when you asked yourself the question, does God even exist? Does he even exist? Is he real or is he not? To ask that question means you don't know him. That means you don't know that he exists, at least not for sure. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother asking that question. And do you suppose that the reason why you don't know who he is is because there's something wrong with him? You think that maybe he's off on vacation somewhere? You think that he's in bed sick with the flu? No, you don't know who he is. You know nothing about him because you're dead. That's why. Because you are spiritually dead. You don't know him any more than a dead stick knows the tree that it came from. You must be resurrected. You must be made into an entirely different, a new creation. And that's what he does. Through salvation, he resurrects you and makes you into a completely different person, into a new creation. And this is something that only the divine can do, only he can do. There is nothing that we can do in order to participate in that, in order to affect that, in order to lay claim that we were part of the process. There's only one thing you can do. You can surrender to him or you can reject him. That's it. There are no other options. This is not even about making an agreement with God. This is about surrendering to what he has to offer you. He has offered you the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't hold anybody's sins against them anymore. He dealt with that thousands of years ago. But he did that so that he can offer you the free gift of his very life. And you can accept that or you can reject that. And once you accept that, then you can know the things of God. Then he can illuminate the world to you so that you can see the world through his eyes. You can know the things of heaven and you can know the deepest part of his heart. But instead, what are people consumed with? Should I be totally immersed or should I be sprinkled? Is this about repentance or is it about obedience? Or is it both? Is it about repentance from my sins continually or is it a first act of obedience? What kind of question is that when the real issue is do you know the true and living God? And I will continue with this in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,